You are listening to a Cold Lake Community Church podcast. We hope today's message inspires you. Cold Lake Community Church, a place where families connect. Well, this morning, I'm going to be speaking from Luke. Uh, Luke chapter 7, 36 to 50. And um, we're going to be talking about loving God, what that looks like to have a life in pursuit of Jesus and the things of God. And uh, I don't know about you, but sometimes when you start a project and you pursue after something, sometimes you find that the thing that you started doing has morphed into something else. You know, there have been times that, you know, I've joined clubs, I've joined an activity, and it's morphed into, like, a friend group. Or, you know, there was one time that I, I, on base, I decided that I wanted to start learning some carpentry-related stuff. And so I joined the carpentry club, or whatever it's called on base there, and I purchased myself some nice hardwood and started planing it, and then my work shift changed, and all of a sudden now I wasn't there anymore. But there's a couple of people I did meet from that that I still connect with. And, and I feel kind of bad. I never even went back and got my wood. They probably had to dispose of it at some point or turn it into something else. But often, when I begin a project or begin something, sometimes I get distracted from my original intent for why I was doing it in the first place. And, uh, you know, that often sometimes happens in arguments. I don't know if you've ever been in an argument where all of a sudden you're talking about one thing and then all of a sudden now you're talking about something way over here that doesn't even, has no relation to what you're even discussing. Um, It's so easy sometimes for our life to take these little rabbit holes and to take trails that we never intended. You know, in Jesus' day, the religious people of the day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, used to have arguments and discussions about theology, about God, about the commandments, about the laws of God and what was most important. You know, the law was more than just Ten Commandments, you know. Uh, sometimes I think when we think back on Sunday school and stuff, we might think of the law as the Ten Commandments. But it's so much more than that. There are actually over 600 commandments that govern the nation of Israel. And of the 600, there are about 300 or so that were prohibitions, things that God commanded the people not to do. And the other 285 or so were actual commands, things that God told the people and the nation of Israel to do. You see, what religious scholars of the, of the day were the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they would get together and they would argue amongst themselves about the commandments, which ones were the greater commandments, which ones were lessers, which ones were real felony charges, and which ones were maybe just, you know, not as, as important. And so this was a long-ranging debate And we have this account in Matthew 22 where some people decide to try to trick Jesus. The people are starting to follow Jesus. People are starting to to hear Jesus preach and share with the people. He's beginning to gain influence. And, And so the Bible says in Matthew 22, 34, that hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. And one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with a question. He said, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? 
likely when he asked this question, he was expecting half the people in attendance hearing his response would instantly be upset by his response. That he would have to pick sides between the Sadducees' opinions or the Pharisees' opinion about which was actually more important. Jesus' response, of course, in verse 37, he quotes Deuteronomy 6, where he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And then he follows it up with something from Leviticus. It says, Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Isn't it amazing? In other words, Jesus says that of all the commandments of Scripture, the common denominator you will find in all of them is to please God and to love others. To love God and to love others. We are called as Christians to love God, to give Him everything that we have and everything that we are, to lay aside our old life and to pursue Him with everything our heart, our soul, and our mind. I'd be curious just for a moment to ask you what you feel defines your spiritual walk and your Christian life right now. What would those closest to you say defines your walk with God? And what would non-believers in your life, people that know you well, say defines you? Is it your passion and love for Jesus? Is it your care and love and concern for others and your service to the betterment of other people? You know, I wonder what CLCC, Coley Community Church, what our reputation is in our community. You see, our mission at Coley Community Church is to share God's love everywhere. And we do that by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But this will only be accomplished as our church family continues to grow in their love for God. As I was sharing a little bit earlier, last time I spoke, I was speaking about the scripture in which Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. And how sometimes we try to earn God's love and acceptance by obedience. But it's putting the cart before the horse. That what happens is we come to God with, in faith And we trust in him. And as we come to know God more, our love for God grows. He begins to change our heart. The Holy Spirit begins to transform us. The Bible calls this inner transformation sanctification. In which we begin to look more like him. And the things of God become the things of us. Because we are walking in God, in his spirit, by his spirit, in communion with him every day. You know, this morning, I want to focus on this first step, this greatest commandment of loving God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. We learn first and foremost, the primary imperative in this statement is love. It's love. And you'll notice that it's not good works, that it's not striving in righteousness, it's not honoring your parents, and it's not the pursuit of knowledge. As good as it is to love the Word of God and study the Word of God, at the end of the day, it's meant to be the means to an end and not the end itself. I don't know if you've ever got caught up in that trap of doing a daily devotional 
or reading your Bible, maybe you have a reading plan, and all of a sudden it begins to become a real burden. And you find yourself doing it just to check it off your to-do list. And now it no longer is about connecting with God, communing with God, hearing from God. But it's become just like the equivalent of take the garbage out, do the laundry, mow the grass, clean up the dirty dishes before mom gets home. It's not the intent of a study, of studying the word of God. It's the means of us to be able to grow and learn who God is and know God better. And that means to grow in love for God. You know, sometimes the very educated and, and those in the world, especially those who come from a liberal arts background, often people are familiar with the Bible. The Bible is, is a very important text that is used in, in many different contexts. But often in a world today, Christianity and the Bible, they're, they're viewed as outdated philosophical or, or mythological stories that are collected into a great work. You know, and the problem is, is that people can read the Word of God, they can study the Word of God, and not know God. Did you know that? That there are university professors that have spent their whole lives studying Scripture, but don't know Jesus. They don't believe it's the Word of God. They don't believe that it has value beyond a mythological story, that we can try to draw a principle into our life, which will make our life better. In a way, it's like trying to read the Coles Notes version of the Bible. It won't save you that way. You know, it's by our salvation comes by repenting and putting our trust in the person of Jesus, in the Son of God, whom he sent to die for our sins. You know, the Greek word for philosophy is philosophia, which means the love of knowledge. There are many today that have a love of knowledge. And we can't allow our love for knowledge to process, pursue or to be greater than our love for God. You know, the pursuit of knowledge in and of itself can even become an idol in our life, one that distracts us from the main purpose, which is to help us to know, love, and worship God. You know, we come to know God by the Bible, and it's powerful. It's the word of God and it's truth. 2 Timothy 3.16, many of us will be familiar with this scripture. It says, all scripture is God-breathed. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God desires our obedience, but strict observance to the law and not realizing the point behind the observance of the law is what leads people astray. You know, if it was just strict observance to the law that impressed God, Jesus would have come praising the Pharisees because they were a people that knew how to live by the law. They even added onto the law, made extra laws just to make sure they didn't slip up in any way. And so these were people that lived very legalistic lives, people that pursued the law and studied the law and knew the law. But Jesus says that they missed the heart of the law, which God gave to the Israelites. You see, the greatest command, which was then and is still today, is to love the Lord your God. Love the Lord your God. 
And as we learn to love God, his love is manifested in our life as praise, as worship, as serving and caring for other people, and in obedience. For he says, if you love me, you will obey me. You know, when my wife asked me to do something, there's even some tight days that I don't even feel like doing it, perhaps, but because I love her, I will. If it's something that's important to my wife, some days I'll go out of my way to try to do it for her just to make her happy. And that's almost sometimes what it's like with God, that it's not about following a to-do list. It's not about, if I don't do this, God's going to smite me. But as we walk in a loving relationship with God, all of a sudden we begin to change and we love God and the thing that was okay yesterday is not okay today because we have changed. God has made us new. He's made us a new person and we love God and our main pursuit is to please God, is to serve God and to surrender our life to him, be led by his spirit. 1 John 4.8 says, Dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. To love God is to desire to worship and praise him. It's to be devoted to him. You know, the Bible says that we are to worship the Lord our God and serve him only. And this means that we put God first and our relationship with God and communing with God becomes a priority and the most precious thing in our life that we don't want to live without. You know, Psalm 42, 1 says, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. I don't know if you've ever been really, really thirsty. Really thirsty. In those moments, or maybe you've been really, really hungry. And in those moments, sometimes all you can think about is food, is quenching your thirst. And that kind of hunger, that kind of, that kind of thirst for the things of God is important. That when we are hungry for the things of God, we'll pursue after it. We love God. And the more that we love God, there's a desire for the things of God. Loving God with all our heart, with all our soul, means moving from receiving Christ as our personal Savior and allowing Jesus to be the Lord of our life from that point and day forward. It's an amazing thing. It's a relationship. It's a back and forth. It's a daily relationship with the God Almighty. You know, someone named Shea Sumlin, I read on a post not too long ago about, about this word Lord or what it means to us in our life. She wrote this, Hebrew, the Hebrew equivalent in the Greek for Lord is Yahweh. This is just not any Lord. This is the covenant-keeping God. This is the God who's faithful to his promises, 
who's merciful, who's righteous, who's gracious, and who's perfect in all his affections. There's no one on this earth who is more deserving of love than this Lord. But not only that, he is Elohim. The Bible says, love the Lord your God. He is the almighty, the all-powerful, the eternal, the everywhere, all-present God. And what's amazing is that he is your God. He is my God. We're to love the Lord, your God, our God. He's a personal God. He's not just some abstract idea, some thought, a philosophy. He's not a phenomena that we meditate on and worship from, from afar. It's not like walking through a gallery and contemplating pictures and artists' work. God is personal, and he's our God. He says, love the Lord your God, because he's the one who is faithful to us in all things. You know, many of us in this room will have testimonies of God's faithfulness, of how he pulled you out of a life of sin, but he plucked you out of a pit of despair, but he brought joy to your life when you thought you'd never experience it again. You know, he's redeemed you by the blood of Jesus Christ, and he sealed his spirit in you as a payment for all eternity, which is to come. And he is not only the lamb of God that was slain for the world, but he is the lamb of God who was slain for you. Jesus is savior of the world, yes, but he's also your savior, and he's your Lord. The interesting thing about having a Lord, it's about being about his business and not our own. You know, a couple of years ago, Rhea and I were in England, and we went to this old manor. It was really interesting. It was kind of like, it wasn't the manor like for Downton Abbey, but it was kind of like that. And they had a tour in which we went through the house, and there was the lord of the manor, the lord of the house, who owned everything. But he was often away on business. And so there would be a manager of the household that would be set up that had the authority of the lord to spend his money, to hire, to fire, to make decisions about the house. And he was somebody that was trusted, somebody who had the seal of the Lord that could make very, very important decisions. That was very interesting. But he explained that this Lord had a lot of responsibility. And so what it meant is if the Lord came home from the house and his manager was doing something that he shouldn't, if he was mismanaging funds, if he was doing things he shouldn't that he knew were against the master, the Lord's will. Ikes. It was not going to be good for him. You know, sometimes I feel like there are moments in our life, I'm sure, that we are dutiful and we're serving our Lord. But for many of us, for a lot of our, our life is filled up with selfish pursuits in which we are pursuing ourselves as Lord. We've made ourselves a Lord and we pursue comfort and affluence over the things of God. And we equate being in God's will 
with the easy ride. That if it feels good and it's flowing well and there's not a huge cost and then God is blessed and it must be God's will. And then if something else is hard and difficult and trying, well, there must be something wrong. I must be out of God's will. That's not the way God works. God never promised us an easy path, but he did promise to be with us always. As we pursue the will of our Father, the, the will of the Master, and we make Jesus Lord of our life, he will give you what you need to accomplish that which he's called you to do. He'll bring people alongside to partner with you. He will empower you with his Holy Spirit, give you spiritual gifts to be able to do the things he's called you to do, to preach his word, to heal the sick, to bring hope to someone who's hopeless, to speak life into somebody who's experiencing depression, that they would experience the joy of the Lord, that they would taste and see that the Lord is good and want more of him. We're to love God above all else because he has loved us better than anyone else, more eternally, more faithfully than anybody else. No one on the face of this earth has loved us like God has. And that's why John tells us in 1 John that the reason we love him is because he first loved us. The reason we have any capability to love him is because he has loved us and redeemed us and restored us and made us new. He's restored our, our spiritual beings so we can even stand before God. No one's loved us like God has. If it wasn't for Jesus Christ being the model of what love is, dying for us, taking on human flesh for us and rising from the dead for us, when none of us deserved it, we'd never really know what true love is. We'd have a shadow of love, but not the real thing. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey me. And our obedience to God is a response to our loving gratitude of Christ as we walk out our obedience in response to what God has done in our life out of our relationship with him. In Luke 7, there's an interesting story about Jesus and an immoral woman who he encounters while eating at the house of a Pharisee. Most of your Bibles might have a title that might say, like, Jesus anointed by an immoral woman. And some Bibles, this story doesn't have its own section, but it's included in the section before it in one large, large piece of Scripture. But we're going to be starting today looking at verse 36. So here we go. It says, One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. Now Jesus was famous for eating with all sorts of different types of people. And you notice that, you know, Jesus was called the friend of sinners. And he was often criticized by the religious elite of the day for associating himself with people who, who lived immoral lifestyles, who did not live by the law, people who were unclean even, touching lepers, touching people who could have diseased him and made him unclean. But Jesus was a different sort of man because he wasn't just any man. He was a God man. You know, back then, if, if you came across a leper, you'd not come anywhere near that vicinity. They'd ring a bell. They'd let you know that they were coming because if you came in contact with a leper, you would be made unclean. 
But Jesus, when he makes contact with a leper, the leper becomes clean. That's the encounter that we need. A touch from God. A real touch from God that makes us clean. That renews our soul. That rejuvenates our spirit. That puts a passion for God. It causes us to desire the things of God, to pursue after righteousness, to pursue a life of holiness. It says in verse 37, then a certain immoral woman from the city heard he was eating, and she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. So I just want to note here that this was not a private dinner party. This was more like a public event. And so when some of these high um, status people in this day and age would have would invite people over to their house. It was like a ceremony. It was it was like a festival, and the common people could come and line the walls of the building that they were eating in. And so, as Jesus and the Pharisees and, and whoever else were the invited guests are sitting at this little table that would have been really low to the ground, sitting on little cushions, leaning up against the table with their feet sticking out away from the table. There would have been a crowd of people surrounding this area, just standing there listening, being part of, of what is happening, but, but not interacting, just being there, being present, being a fly on the wall. You know, often people's sandals would be removed, I read, before reclining to the table. There would be slaves that would be there serving the, the guests, especially the guest of honor, washing their feet, doing the ceremonial things that would, would bring honor onto somebody who is now in your household. So in now comes this immoral woman. It's interesting here that it says, when a certain immoral woman from that city heard he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster, a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. It's interesting is that she heard he was there. She went and grabbed her perfume to take. This was an intentional act. This wasn't just an on-the-fly thing. You know what? I don't know if you know what an alabaster jar would have been, but it would have been like this globular-looking thing, um, a container that had perfume. It would be something that had no handles, likely. It was furnished with a long neck, and that the only way to get the contents out would literally be to break the neck to be able to pour the contents out. This was a product that was very highly valued. It was expensive. It was often used as dowries for marriage. And this was a very, very expensive jar of perfume. When she knelt behind him, it says in verse 38, at his feet weeping. So already this is an unusual situation. This woman, this immoral woman who most people think was likely a prostitute, shows up at this dinner and she breaks the social decorum. She doesn't just stand at the wall like a fly on the wall, but she approaches the table, which you do not do. And she took, begins to weep at Jesus' feet. It says that her tears fell on his feet and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. This is a very interesting thing. You see this woman who lets her hair down. This was also something that was not common to do in public in this day. 
for a woman to bring her hair down and expose like that would have been something that would have been very undignified in this day and time. And then she begins to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them off with her hair. And then she begins to kiss his feet and pouring perfume on them. Like, this is a very weird story. Could you imagine if someone came into your house and started doing this? When you read this, it's very unusual. Very unusual. This doesn't happen every day. And this didn't happen every day then either. When the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said to himself, is this man really a prophet? If he was, he would know the kind of woman touching him, for she's a sinner. You know, Simon sees this woman, but I imagine that he's not acknowledging it, that everyone at the table is just ignoring this woman, probably shocked, but they're ignoring her. And this Pharisee, Simon, in his heart, says if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and would not allow this woman to touch him. Jesus then, answers his thoughts. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. Then Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver, some versions will say denarii, to one, and 50 pieces to another. Neither of them could repay their debt, so he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Jesus says, who do you suppose loved him more after that? It's interesting, in a parable in Matthew 20, a denarii was described as one day's wages for a laborer. So there's a huge discrepancy here between the two amounts of debt. One guy owes maybe two and a half months worth of wages. The other fellow, two years potentially, of wages. And instantly, both debts are canceled. I've gone down to zero. I don't know if any of you have seen those old MasterCard or Visa commercials, I don't remember which one, where they have their bill and it's filled with stuff and they're like on the beach on a vacation. They shake it and all of a sudden, all the numbers fall apart and there's just a zero at the bottom. I can't remember what, like, what it was exactly advertising, but that's kind of what it's like. It's like they have this huge debt and all of a sudden, it's just like forgiven. It's gone. And interestingly enough, Jesus didn't ask who's more appreciative of this debt that was paid. He doesn't say who was more relieved that the debt was repaid. His answer, his question is, who loves him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. Jesus says, that's right. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she was washed, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Another translation says that he turned to the woman and asked Simon, do you see this woman? Do you see this woman? And I think that's a great question. Did he see the woman? Who was it that he saw sitting at Jesus' feet? Simon could not see the woman, perhaps, for who she was in that moment. 
but she was, he was looking at who she had been. This woman was a prostitute, somebody who he did not socialize with. And she's coming to Jesus. She's coming to Jesus to anoint him, weeping at his feet, coming to him to love on him and to honor him, to worship him. And all the Pharisee could see was this sinful woman. You know, it was customary in this time that a host would take somebody of honor and they would have had a servant, likely a slave, wash their feet. It was something that was a very low-status person that, that they would do. And this is why Peter, when Jesus got down to, to wash the disciples' feet, said, you, you're not going to touch my feet. Because this was a lowly thing, something that was beyond humble. And here she is, washing his feet. I think what we see happening here in this moment is what it talks about in Isaiah 55, 7. It says, let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. In verse 45, he's continuing to say to the Pharisee, to Simon, you did not greet me with a kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. So it would have been customary that the host kiss the guest of honor. You know, we see that in Scripture where, you know, Paul talks about greeting someone with a holy kiss. It's not an unusual thing in our culture, but in a lot of the Latin world, they still greet people with kisses. I know when I was down in Uruguay, the first time I ever met the Uruguayans, we were in, in the airport, and they, all the Uruguayans come off the plane, and we're standing there greeting for them. We have little flags. And we, have, we have stuff. There were our counterparts for this cultural exchange. And they come up, and they just grabbed us and started doing this air kiss on our cheek. And the guys are all like, whoa, what are you doing? Because even the guys are like doing this air kiss to the other guys. And it was so unusual. We weren't really told that that was going to be what happened. And we're all sticking there trying to stick our arms out like this. But I'll tell you what. After nine months of everywhere you go, somebody embracing you and kissing your cheek when you enter their home. If you came in late from something and there was a gathering of people, that it would be expected that you'd go and greet each person with a kiss. Not a real kiss, but you just put your cheek next to theirs and make a fake kissing noise. After that, when you come home and you greet somebody like this, do you know how impersonal this felt? It was this culture shock for me just to reach out because I just wanted to grab people and give them a hug and a kiss. You can't do that. Not here. Someone's going to slug you. So here's this woman who won't stop kissing Jesus' feet. Jesus says in verse 46, you neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. Something else that would have been customary that the host would have done is, is anoint his head with with olive oil, which would have been fairly common. This woman didn't bring the common oil for Jesus. She brought the good stuff, the best that she had. Finally, she anointed his feet with perfume. 
This would have normally been on the head, but today she was anointing his feet. It's unclear whether or not in Scripture here that Jesus had ever met her before, but I think that likely she had. Likely she had. You know, when she had heard that Jesus was meeting in Simon's house, she went and grabbed her perfume to come and honor and anoint him. It's maybe possible that she came to anoint his head, but she couldn't get beyond his feet. I don't know if you've ever come into the presence of God where you feel like doing nothing, you can't do anything but just collapse on the ground. Where you come into God's presence and you're just overwhelmed by the glory of God. This woman is overwhelmed. She's crying. She's just emotionally ridden. And boy, I've definitely seen that too. When people come into the presence of God, sometimes people are just emotionally just, they can't contain themselves. This deep, intense weeping. I've seen the Holy Spirit do that in people as well. So here's this woman who comes before Jesus, overcome with emotion, here to worship him, to honor him, to anoint him, giving him all of the customary um, privilege of what he should receive from Simon, but which Simon did not do. Simon dishonored Jesus in his home. And this woman came and honored him in a very unusual way. I think it's very likely that this woman had heard Jesus preach at another time. Perhaps she'd had encounters with Jesus that aren't recorded in Scripture that we don't know about. But clearly she came there to express her love and gratitude and to worship Jesus. You know, verse 47, I tell you, Jesus then says to Simon, that her sins are many, but they've been forgiven. He did not ignore her sin. He did not pretend like she'd never sinned. He acknowledged that she was sinful, that she had a long list, but he forgave her. He says, she has been forgiven, so she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. See, Jesus says your sins are forgiven. Therefore, she's shown much love. You see, we must understand carefully that these words that she loved does not mean that she earned. She earned forgiveness by her actions that day. It does not say that because she wept, because she anointed his feet, because she loved on him, that God forgave her, that Jesus forgave her sin. But it says that she has been forgiven, so therefore she showed God much love. Whatever transaction it had, whatever encounter she'd had with Jesus, I think predated this, ex- this ex- encounter here. And she's coming to show, shower her love and appreciation on Jesus. Jesus turns to the woman and says, your sins are forgiven. The men at the table said among themselves, who is this man that comes around forgiving sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Your faith has saved you. Here he is saying that her love is proof that she has already been forgiven. It was her response to God's grace. Her many sins had been forgiven. And therefore, she showed great love to Jesus. By contrast, he who is forgiven little loves little, Jesus says. And Jesus ignores the chatter of these other men at the table 
and turns to the woman and says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You know, many times in the New Testament does it say that faith is the means of receiving God's grace, not works. It's not by doing in which we receive God's grace, but it's by believing, putting our trust in Jesus. And this is important to recognize that it wasn't her expression of love in and of itself that saved her, but her faith in Jesus that led her to express love to him and to demonstrate this act of worship and honor. We worship God today as a response to the greatness of God in our life. When we come to place our faith in him and begin to understand how desperately we need God, that we need a savior, and we hear the gospel and we respond to it, we'll, we'll be changed and we'll want to worship God and to praise him, to love him and to serve him with our life. Psalm 51, 10 to 13 says, Create in me, Lord, a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. That's what we do, isn't it? This morning we're coming to God and saying, purify us by your fire. God, renew a steadfast spirit within me, a passion for you, for your word, for your spirit. Restore the joy of salvation. I think some of us need to re, a restore joy for what God has done in our life. Some of us haven't forgotten, but it's not fresh. We've lost our, our gratefulness and our gratitude about the, the gravity of what God did and what he is still doing in our lives today. And that leads us to want to go out and to teach others the ways of God so that they too would turn back to Jesus and they too would be forgiven. And my prayer this morning is that we would return and turn our lives to God. That he would give us a new heart for the things of the kingdom of God, a new passion to serve him with everything that we have. That we would be satisfied with the joy of being in God's presence regularly every day and not lose gratitude and thankfulness for what God has accomplished through his son in our lives. And I believe a lot of this is going to be accomplished by us getting our faces before God, repenting and saying, God, I need you. God, I need you in my life. Well, Father God, I thank you, Lord, for your goodness. God, I thank you, Lord, for VBS this year for our day camp. Lord, the kids are going to learn that you are good. Because, God, that is so foundational. God, if we don't believe you're good, we're not going to trust you. We're going to struggle to trust you. But, God, I just thank you, Lord, that you are good. God, I thank you that your love endures forever. God, I thank you, Lord, that you are faithful. And, Lord God, that you are there, Lord, that when we stumble and we trip up, you are there with an outreached hand, wanting to pick us back up. But God, I pray, Lord, that we would put you first, God, that we would seek ye first the kingdom of God and pursue righteousness and right living. Lord, that we would align our lives with your plan, with your word. Lord, that we wouldn't shrug off 
the inconsistencies and the hypocrisy in our life, but God, that we would lay it down, surrender those things to our life, God, that we're still holding on to with a firm grip. And God, that we would be people that would walk and live with an open hand. God, one in which you bless and pour into and one in which your Holy Spirit leads us to pour out into others and to serve others. So God, I thank you this morning. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd surround us this week as we go about our days, as we go about vacations and doing everything that we do. And God, I pray, Lord, that there would just be a rejuvenation of our spirit and our desire and our passion to pursue you and to see you in, in every moment of every day and the sunrise, and the sunset, and the birds of the air. God, that everywhere we look, we would see your glory. God, that we would be instantly aware of your presence in our life and your goodness. And Lord, that those moments over the summer where we begin to maybe feel a little low and depressed, God, that, that you would lift us up, God, that you would remind us that you are there with us. And Lord, that we can live according to your will as we lay our life down and surrender to you. Be willing to make you Lord of all the entirety of our life. So God, I bless this summer. Bless our church. Bless our congregants. Bless all those who are here and those who aren't. God, I pray, Lord, that they'd sense your presence and this would be a summer of drawing near to you like they've never done before. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You have been listening to a Cold Lake Community Church podcast. We hope that you've been blessed by this teaching from Cold Lake Community Church. Thank you for your continued support of this ministry. Cold Lake Community Church, a place where families connect.